Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. So in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, chapter 1. That's where we'll be studying this morning as we kick off our new series, which is called Equipped to Serve. So we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and grace towards us. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has not made your will hidden from us or kept yourself ambiguous, Lord, but you've made yourself known. You've revealed yourself to us and you've come to us in the person of Jesus in order to save us. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning you would help us, that we would see you, Jesus, for who you are. And Lord, as we focus on your word and what it has to say to us, Lord, we pray that this would have a transforming effect on our lives. Lord, that it would shape us all the more into who you are, the image of who you are and who you desire us to become. So we give you this time, to we dedicate it to you, to focus on you, to hear from you, and we pray, Lord, that through this time you'd work in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you drive south on I-25 and you go all the way to the end of Colorado and into New Mexico, if you go south of Albuquerque, you'll see signs for a city called Truth or Consequences. Now, the way that that city got its name is because in 1950, there was a popular game show that aired on the radio, and it was called Truth or Consequences. And that radio program, they got an idea to do a marketing campaign. And in this marketing campaign, here's what they said. They said, any city in the United States that is willing to change the name of their town officially to the name of our game show, Truth or Consequences, then the radio show will actually move, will relocate to that town, and will make that town the base of our operations. So almost immediately, the city of Hot Springs, New Mexico, responded, and they said, yes, we will change the name of our city to the name of your game show. We'll change it to Truth or Consequences. And they did. And the radio show did. They kept their end of the bargain. They moved to New Mexico, to this small town. And eventually, you know, over the years, the game show broadcasted from that city, but eventually the game show ended and it no longer exists. And yet the city is still, still bears the name of that defunct game show, Truth or Consequences. Well, that's certainly not the worst name that has been given as a result of a marketing campaign. For example, in 2016, the British Royal Navy, they decided to ask British citizens to help them name the Navy's new polar research ship. And so some of the names they suggested, right? They said, here are our ideas. You guys can vote on them or maybe suggest some of your own. So they suggested the name Falcon and the name Endeavor, but the name which ended up getting the most votes was kind of a, a write-in ballot name. It was the name Bodie McBoatface. That's actually, this is true. In the Royal Navy, in the British Navy, there's a boat that is, they held up to their end of the bargain. They said, okay, we'll do it. So they named their boat the RSS Bodie McBoatface. Uh, in Slovakia, the government did an online vote to name a new pedestrian bridge in Bratislava, and that's why in Bratislava there's a pedestrian bridge called Chuck Norris. <laughs> and that's true, yeah. So compared to truth or consequences, 
you know, compared to all those other ones, I think Truth and Consequences is actually a pretty good name because I love what it conveys, right? It conveys this important truth that if you don't have the truth, it can lead to consequences. It can lead to consequences which can be bad in some cases. And I think that's accurate. It's true of many areas of our lives. If you don't have the truth, it can lead you to negative consequences and even disasters. If you build a bridge with faulty math, people will get hurt. If a chemist mixes the wrong chemicals, it can lead to disaster. If a builder builds a house without a good foundation, the house can collapse. You know, my wife and I, when we lived in Hungary, we almost bought a house this one time. We, we were kind of toying with the idea. And we found this one house that was near where we lived and it looked amazing and we could afford it. And so we were like, let's do it. So it had a big garden inside, you know, it was nicely furnished. And so we were just, you know, beginning to dream about how we we're going to raise our kids in this nice house until we invited one of our friends to come and look at it with us and get his opinion. He had a background in construction and he looked at the house for about two minutes. I don't even think he went inside and he said, don't buy it. And we said, what do you mean? It's so nice. You didn't even look inside. And he said, I don't need to look inside. It doesn't matter how nice it looks. There are problems with this foundation. And if the foundation's bad, it's going to affect the whole house. The whole thing could eventually collapse. And so we realized our friend was giving us good advice, and we did what he said. Well, interestingly, Jesus described how your life actually has a foundation. There's a foundation for your life, and it's important that you take care to make sure that your life is built on a good foundation. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about two men. He used a parable, right? Two men. One who built his house with a bad foundation, the other who built his house on a solid foundation. At first, right, these two houses, they looked identical. They kind of looked the same from the outside. But when the wind started to blow, when the waves started to crash against the house, that's when the foundation really mattered. And the house that had the bad foundation collapsed, whereas the house with the good foundation endured. Now, in this parable, the house that Jesus is talking about represents your life. And so the question is this, what is the foundation upon which you are building your life? What is the foundation upon which you are building your life? In San Francisco, uh, the, there's this high-rise skyscraper that they built called the Millennium Tower. The Millennium Tower is 58 stories tall. It's the highest residential building in the whole city of San Francisco. And it's home to some of the richest, most famous people in the city, including uh, several professional athletes, including Joe Montana and others. And, and the only problem with the Millennium Tower, of course, is that it has a problem with its foundation, which is a pretty big deal. And as a result of the problem with the foundation, the tower has actually been sinking over the last couple of years. And as it's sinking, it's also starting to lean. So the building has to date already sunk over a foot and a half into the ground, so 18 inches. And it's now leaning and tilting at an average rate of three inches per year, except in 2022, this past year, when the tilt increased to 10 inches over the course of one year. So currently it's leaning 26 inches, right? Over two feet, it's leaning in one direction, tilting. And the architects are saying that when the tilt reaches 40 inches, the elevators are going to stop working and the plumbing in much of the building will actually stop working as well. In other words, foundations 
are pretty important. They matter. And again, it's worth asking ourselves then the question, what is the foundation upon which you're building your life? Now, if you go back to that parable that Jesus spoke about two men who built houses, but they built them on different foundations, here's what Jesus is telling us. What then is the foundation of your life? How do you build it? What, what constitutes the foundation of your life? And here's what Jesus is telling us in that parable. What constitutes the foundation of your life is the doctrine that you hold to. The doctrines that you believe. You know what doctrine is? Doctrine refers to the fundamental, the core doctrines that you believe in about God, about yourself, about the world, about other people. Doctrine is the foundation upon which you build your life. But not all doctrines are created equal. That's important, right? Not all doctrines are created equal. There are good doctrines and there are bad doctrines, and what determines whether a doctrine is a good doctrine or a bad doctrine is whether it is true, whether it's true. And how do you know if a doctrine is true or whether it's false? Well, the answer to that is by measuring it against the word of God, the word of God, what God has given us, his revelation to us. Now, the reason why we want to have good doctrine is not just so that we can pat ourselves on the back or feel that we're superior to others who have bad doctrine. Not at all. The, the reason why we want to have good doctrine is very practical. Because what you believe shapes the way you live. It absolutely does. What you believe is the foundation for your life. It shapes the way that you live. What you believe matters because what you believe will shape the way that you live, especially when you encounter trials and difficulties in your lives. It will shape the way that you relate to and think about other people. It will shape the way that you choose to, to live your life in a sense of what you pursue and what you value, it, it determines those things for you. So you see, so I've heard people sometimes insinuate, or even in some cases, they'll just straight up say that doctrine and the study of doctrine is a distraction, right? Oh, doctrine, you know, theology, we just need to ignore all that stuff. You know what we need to do? We just need to focus on loving Jesus and following him. Now, at first, that might sound like a, a pretty compelling argument. Oh, yeah, we do need to just, yeah, get away from doctrine and all that theology stuff. But listen, that, that's kind of like saying, I love my wife, but I don't want to know anything about her. Uh, I love my wife, but when she talks, I just don't listen at all. Uh, or like, I really like driving my car, but there are these blinking lights on my dashboard, and I don't want to know what they mean. In other words, I would add this. In this case, it's actually more at stake than those simple, you know, illustrations I gave you. And here's why. Because your doctrine is indeed the foundation, as Jesus said, upon which you build your life. And so the question is this, will you build your life on a good foundation or will you build it on a bad foundation? That's a very practical and important question. In our passage today, as we get into the, the first chapter of 1 Timothy, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that doctrine matters because what you believe has very practical implications for your life and how you live. And sound doctrine will result in good results in your life. But bad doctrine will lead to bad results in your life. It's that simple. And here's why. The title of today's message is Truth or Consequences. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that sound doctrine gives a foundation for a life of health and peace based on the hope of the gospel. So sound doctrine 
gives a foundation for a life of health and peace based on the hope of the gospel. So let's take that sentence and we'll keep that idea with us as we go. We'll break it into a couple parts and we'll use it as our guide for working through our text today here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So the first part, sound doctrine gives a foundation. 1 Timothy chapter 1 begins with these words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, 1 Timothy, like many books in the New Testament, is a letter. It's a letter which was written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Timothy. Now, if you read through the New Testament, especially the book of Acts and Paul's other epistles or letters, you'll notice that this name Timothy turns up a lot, right? He's mentioned a lot in the Bible. Now, the reason for that is because Timothy had a very close relationship with the Apostle Paul. We read about Timothy for the first time in the book of Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul was on his second missionary journey. And during that journey, he went back to a city that he had visited on his first missionary journey. See, so on Paul's first missionary journey, one of the places he visited where they preached the gospel and planted a church with new believers was a city called Lystra. And so after Paul's first missionary journey, they had founded this church, established it, and moved and gone back to other places. Well, on his second missionary journey, Paul said, I want to see how those guys in Lystra are doing. So Paul went back to Lystra to visit the church there, to check on them. And while Paul was there in Lystra, it says that he met a young man in the church named Timothy. That's where we first meet Timothy. He was a young man attending, being part of this church that was there in Lystra. And as Paul was with him during that time, visiting the church, you know, Paul's heart was tied to him. He could see that God perhaps wanted to use this man, that this man had a heart for the Lord. And so Paul invited Timothy at that time to join him on his missionary journey, his second missionary journey, to be part of the missionary team that Paul was assembling. And they would go from city to city, and they would tell people about Jesus, and they would start churches. And so Timothy went with Paul. At that time, he might have been uh, in his late teens. He might have been in his 20s at that time when he first started in, as a missionary with Paul. And for years, they traveled together. They became very close. And that's why he says here in verse 2, Paul refers to Timothy as my true child in the faith. You see, Timothy was younger than Paul by quite a bit. He might have been, again, in his early teens or, or even in his 20s when he joined Paul on his missionary journeys. Now some time has, has gone by. Paul, Timothy's probably in his 30s at this point, uh, that the time that Paul's writing this letter. Now we know that Timothy's mother and his grandmother were Christians, and they were part of the church there in Lystra. But we also know that Timothy's father was not a Christian. He was a pagan Greek and so Paul became, took on this role in Timothy's life that he was kind of like a spiritual father to him. He had a mentoring relationship with him and he loved Timothy as if he was his own son. There was this relationship between them where Timothy would look to Paul for wisdom and direction, especially in life and ministry. And yet even though this letter is addressed to Timothy, here's a really important thing for you to take note of. This letter was not intended to be only read by Timothy. You see, it wasn't just like a, a private letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and we we're just kind of reading someone else's mail. Now, you see, this letter was actually intended to be read 
by the entire church and by other churches. Here's why. Notice, for example, Paul begins this letter in verse 1 by, by giving his credentials. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope. Now listen, if this was just a, a private letter that was only meant to be read by Timothy, Paul wouldn't have needed to include these credentials. Timothy knew quite well who Paul was. He didn't need Paul to tell him that he was an apostle. He'd be like, hey, Paul, I know, man, you don't need to, you're coming on a little strong. You don't need to tell me you're an apostle. No, of course. Timothy knew who Paul was. He knew that Paul was an apostle. But this letter, you see, it wasn't meant to just be read by Timothy only. It was meant to be read by the entire church, and we'll talk about why that was in just a minute. And it was intended to be read by other churches as well, because the things that Paul is going to talk about in this letter are things that actually apply to everyone in that church, and not only in that church, even in our church today. You see, 1 Timothy is the first of a series of three letters in the New Testament, which are called the pastoral epistles. And the reason they're called pastoral epistles, these were letters were written by the Apostle Paul to young pastors about how to lead their churches. Now, you might say, well, I'm not sure that this is going to, you know, apply to me because I'm not a pastor, so I guess these books don't, aren't for me. Well, listen, that's, that's not true. Again, this book was addressed to Timothy by name. But it was intended to have been read before the entire church. They would take the letter, read it aloud. These letters were then copied and passed around and read in all the churches. The early Christians, they considered these books, the ones that we're reading, including 1 Timothy, to be holy scripture inspired by God that every follower of Jesus at all times throughout history needed to read because it had a message for all of them. You see, as we study through these letters, you're going to see how incredibly practical the messages of the pastoral epistles are for every single one of us. And here's why. Because every single one of us, no matter who you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has called you to be part of his ministry. He's called you to be part of his mission in the world. And since you've been called by God to serve him by serving others, do you realize that? That oftentimes, most oftentimes, serving God looks a lot like serving others in his name. Well, since you've been called to serve God by serving others, it's important that you be equipped to serve. And that's why this letter, even though it was written to Timothy, it wasn't written only for Timothy. It has an important message for all of us who are followers of Jesus. And so Paul goes on to say this in the second part of verse 2. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you read Paul's other letters, you'll notice that he almost always starts his letters with the same greeting. You know, grace to you and peace from Christ Jesus, etc. Grace to you and peace, which actually is an interesting play on words. I won't go too much into it. But grace being a common Greek greeting, peace being a common Jewish greeting, he was kind of greeting the two factions which tended to exist in each and every church. And yet it also had a theological message, right? This is what the gospel gives you. Grace grace of God. And with that grace comes peace. But notice here, he adds a third word to his common greeting that he almost always uses. Instead of just saying grace and peace, now here he says, grace, mercy, and peace to you. Now, what does the word mercy mean? Mercy, I like to define it like this. It is God's patience and compassion 
towards us in spite of our weakness. God's patience and compassion towards us in spite of our weakness. You know, maybe Paul included this word mercy in here when writing to Timothy, especially because he knew that Timothy needed God's mercy, perhaps for the situations he was facing in his life, perhaps for the situations he was facing as he led this church And he says in verse 3, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So the occasion for this letter, the the thing that prompted the writing of this letter, is that Timothy was in the city of Ephesus, where he was pastoring and leading the church there in that city. And in that church, they had a problem. The problem was that people were promoting and teaching false doctrines. Now, you might wonder, well, wait a second. If Timothy was the pastor, then how is it that they had a problem with people teaching false doctrine? I mean, as the pastor, wasn't Timothy the one doing all the teaching, right? Then how could there be a problem with people teaching false doctrine? Well, to understand why this was a problem, you kind of have to understand how the church functioned at that time and place in history. See, Christianity at this time in the Roman Empire was an illicit religion. That's what it was called in Latin, religia illicitas, which means that it did not have legal status in the Roman Empire. It was not a legally recognized religion. In some cases, of course, this led to Christianity being persecuted. But in a lot of cases, it wasn't persecuted. But the fact that it was was illicit, it was not registered, it was not legal, it didn't have legal status, what that meant is that Christians did not have the ability Ability to build or to purchase or to own church buildings, places dedicated for worship. Eventually, Christians were allowed to do that, and when they were allowed to do it, they did do it. But at this point in the church's history, in the Roman Empire specifically, the Christians were not allowed to have big church gatherings. And so what would happen is, as there became more and more Christians in a city, what they would do is they would create these networks of gatherings that would usually meet in people's homes. So when you picture the church in Ephesus or the church in Rome or or the church in Corinth, what you should have in your mind is not a picture of one large gathering in a big building. Rather, imagine something more similar to what we do with community groups. Right? People gather in each other's homes to study the scriptures, to pray, and to break bread. But understand that this network of gatherings still had a centralized structure with elders and leaders. And so Timothy, as the pastor, as the overseer of the church in Ephesus, he, he wasn't just the pastor of one big church, right, in one single congregation. Rather, he was overseeing this network of smaller gatherings that met generally in people's homes. And so what that meant for Timothy as the pastor and as the leader is that he needed to be in charge of knowing what was being taught in those gatherings and whether good doctrine was being taught or whether bad doctrine was being taught. In other words, it was quite the, quite the task, you know, to make sure that it was good doctrine being taught in all of these different gatherings. In verse 3, Paul makes it clear that some people in the Ephesian church there, there in these gatherings, they were teaching false doctrines. 
We'll get into the exact nature of what these false teachings were in just a minute, but here's why Paul considered this to be such an urgent problem that people were teaching wrong things. And here's why. Because Paul says in verse four, he says, these teachings, they are contrary to the stewardship that we have received from God that is by faith. Now, what does that mean? Stewardship means that something has been given to you and entrusted to your care something special, something valuable. And as the steward of it, your job is to protect it and to deal with it well. In other words, God has given us a stewardship that is by faith. What is that? He's given us a message, the gospel. He's given us doctrines. And and it's important that we steward them well, that we don't change them, that we don't adulterate them, that we share them faithfully. You know, Paul says later on in this letter, in chapter 3, he says this is actually one of the important roles of the church. The church is to be, he says there, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church's job is to protect and steward good doctrine, sound doctrine, and the integrity of God's true message to humanity, the true gospel, the way of salvation, to make sure that it doesn't get changed, that it doesn't get altered over time. But notice how another translation translates verse 4. It says that the problem with false teachings is actually that they don't advance God's work. They don't advance God's work. In other words, not only are these teachings not true, which is not good, but because they're not true, they're also not helpful. Because they're not true, they're not actually able to help you in the things that you need help for in your life. In other words, what Paul's saying here in 1 Timothy is that the true gospel, good doctrine, sound doctrine, it has a good and helpful effect on your life, whereas bad doctrine actually has a negative effect on your life. And now look at verse 5. Paul tells us that the, the good effect that sound doctrine, that the true gospel has on our lives, here's what it is. The aim of our charge, he says, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. This is what sound doctrine and the true gospel produces in a person's life. First of all, a pure heart. Secondly, a, a good conscience. And finally, sincere faith. And what all of this leads to and what all of it produces and also where it comes from, it comes from and it produces love. Love for God and love for others. In other words, again, doctrine matters. What you believe about God, what you believe about yourself and about others in the world, doctrinally, these things have real practical impact on the way you think, the way you act, and the way you live. How is that so? Well, that brings us to the next part of our sentence. Sound doctrine gives a foundation for a life of health and peace. Look at what he says in verse 6. Certain persons, having swerved from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So the false teachings that were infecting the church in Ephesus, they had to do, in large part, with an incorrect understanding about the role and purpose of the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses is the name we give to the 613 laws, which are found in the Old Testament books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And these laws essentially break down into three basic categories. Civil laws, 
ceremonial laws, and moral laws. And one of the big questions that people had back at that time, and by the way, one of the questions that many people still wonder about today is this. This is the question. What is the role of the law of Moses, those Old Testament laws? What is the role of the law of Moses in the life of a Christian person? Some people would say that those laws have absolutely no bearing, no application whatsoever to the life of a Christian today, whereas other people would say, no, 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 they still do have an important role and function in the life of a Christian. It would seem that the situation in Ephesus was that there were people who were teaching that in order to be right with God, in order to be accepted by God, in order to merit God's blessings, you had to keep the law of Moses. These laws included dietary laws. They included laws about moral actions. They also included ceremonial laws about cleansing and being, being ceremonially pure. But the pinnacle of the law of Moses was the Ten Commandments. And here's the deal. In addition to teaching people that they needed to keep the law of Moses in order to be accepted by God, Paul mentions that there were other things that were going on doctrinally with the people there in Ephesus. They, some of the people in Ephesus were teaching Jewish myths and kind of fables. Others were getting into wild speculation about genealogies, looking for secret messages or some kind of spiritual significance in them. They, they were Additionally, they were making up unnecessary rules, what we call asceticism, which forbade people from eating certain kinds of food, and in some cases forbade people from getting married. We'll read about that later on in this letter. But in other words, these people had gotten away from the simplicity of studying the scriptures and learning sound doctrine and just celebrating the good news of the gospel. Now, I'll tell you what, I've actually seen this happen with several people over the years. It's as if they, they would say that they've gotten bored with the Bible and they're looking for something deeper. They're looking for something deeper. So, you know, the, this Bible stuff, you know, the stuff that's taught in the Bible and, and understanding the gospel, they would say that's kind of like kid stuff, man. That's the ABCs. That's just the entry level stuff. But then how do you find the deeper things? And in their quest for deeper things, I've watched people become, you know, some people, in, in some cases, they become extremely legalistic. They get all into rules and things like that. Other people, they get involved in kinds of like wild speculation that moves outside the lines of what God has given us in the scriptures. And here the, the Apostle Paul is saying this. You know, all these things that you're getting into, this stuff that's outside the Bible, this stuff that's, you know, speculations and whatever. He says, you know what this is? It's just a bunch of vain discussions. And he says, it's meaningless talk, meaningless chatter. It has the appearance of being ultra spiritual. But he says, you know what? In reality, you know what these things produce in your life? This should be a good red flag for you. Here's what these things produce in your life. They produce, in this case, he says, useless controversies and divisions. They produce arrogance in, the, in these people. And they're producing greed. This is the practical outworking of these bad doctrines. In other words, whereas sound doctrine produces health and peace in the life of a believer, false doctrine leads to unhealthy attitudes and it leads to anxiety. 
Because you're always trying to prove yourself. You're always striving to find that next new thing, to have your mind blown or prove, have blow other people's minds, right? You're always trying to do something, look for the next new thing. There's a sense of anxiety. You're always trying to prove yourself. But whereas these false teachings produced arrogance, understand that the sound doctrine and true, the true gospel produces humility. Because the true gospel right, tells you who God is and who you are in relation to him and why you need Jesus to be your savior rather than, in other words, rather than filling you with pride, the true gospel brings you low. It fills you with humility. Whereas false teachings produced greed in the hearts and minds of those who adhered to them, Sound doctrine, the true gospel, you know what it produces? It produces gratitude. Gratitude because you understand who God is and who you are, and you begin to appreciate his grace all the more, that undeserved favor all the more. You realize that you haven't earned or deserved anything, but God has graciously given it to you, and therefore it causes you to grow in gratitude as opposed to greed. And whereas false teachings produce useless controversies and divisions, sound doctrine in the true gospel gives meaningful purpose and direction to your life towards things that actually matter. You know, here's the deal. I'm so convinced of this. I feel like I've, I've experienced it in my own life. I'm convinced that the deepest thing that you can do spiritually is to build your life on the sound doctrine of the word of God. The deepest thing you can do spiritually is seek to live out the implications of the gospel in your life, to learn what it means to trust God in the situations that come your way in life, to learn what it means to actually forgive others as God has forgiven you, to sacrifice and live sacrificially, to serve others sacrificially for God's glory because that's what he's done for you, to confess your sins and surrender your life to God's will. Say, here I am, Lord, wherever you want me to go and whatever you want me to do, I'll do it to engage in God's mission and bring his love and truth to the world, to allow the spirit of God to transform you and make you more like Jesus. Friends, let me tell you, that's the deep stuff. That's as deep as it gets. And you know what? It's more than enough to keep you busy for the rest of your life. As you fill your heart and your mind with sound doctrine, as you build your life upon sound doctrine, you know what it will lead to? It will lead to health and peace, even in the midst of a broken and raging world. And finally, the last part of our sentence says this, says sound doctrine gives the foundation of health, foundation for life of health and peace based on the hope of the gospel. Look at what Paul says in verse nine. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Again, one of the characteristics of the false teaching in Ephesus was an incorrect understanding of the purpose of the law. And so that brings up the question, what is then the purpose of the law? How do you use it rightly? What has God given it to us for? What is the role of the law in the life of a Christian? Here's what Paul says in verse uh, nine. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God 
with which I've been entrusted. What Paul is telling us here is this. The reason God gave us his law is not so we could use it to show how awesome we are, to earn his blessings or to work our way up into his good graces. Rather, the reason God gave us his law was actually the opposite. It was to show us how flawed we are. See, the purpose of the law was to help us see God's perfection and our imperfection. And here's how Paul explains the purpose of the law in his letter to the Romans. He says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. See, the purpose of the law is to show us beyond any shadow of a doubt that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And since the wages of sin is death, the purpose of the law is to show us that we are sinners who need a Savior. The purpose of the law, in other words, is to drive us to Jesus. Now, if you look at this list that Paul gives in verses 9 and 10 of who the law is for, it's interesting because, I want you to see this, it's not just a random list of bad things that, peop that people might do, right? Well, people might do these things, and those things are bad, right? That's not what he's saying. Each of these things in this list, if you go through it, here's what you'll notice. It corresponds directly to one of the Ten Commandments. Actually, in order as well, going through the Ten Commandments. In other words, remember, these people thought themselves to be teachers of the law. And Paul says, the problem is that what you're teaching is actually contrary to the gospel. You're teaching, right, that people need to keep the law in order to, to be, you know, earn God's good graces. But Paul says, no, 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 that's, that's not what the law is for at all. And here's Paul's point. He goes, you know what? If you've broken the law at just even one point, maybe you've sinned only a little. Paul says, you know what? If you've broken God's law, even at just one point, you know what that makes you? It puts you in the same boat before God as murderers, as liars, as perjurers, as adulterers. Maybe you say, well, I've never murdered anybody. And Paul says, it doesn't matter. You're in the same boat because you've broken God's law just as they have. And so you are in desperate need of a Savior. That's the purpose and the role of God's law in your life is to drive you to Jesus, not to cause you to be puffed up in thinking that you're better than others. No one has ever lived up to or kept God's law perfectly, except for one man, except for one man. And that brings us to the good news Paul has for us in verse 11, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. What is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God? I like to put it this way. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is good news for bad people. That's what the gospel is. And it's really good news for people like you and me because it's the message that God loves you so much in spite of your failures, in spite of your flaws, that he came to us in order to save you. God Almighty became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And whereas we have failed to live up to God's perfect standard, Jesus lived a life of moral perfection. He kept the law of God. He fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements, and he did it for you. And then he offered himself up as a sacrifice to atone for your sins. And because of what Jesus did for you, you can have the peace which comes from having a clean conscience because you know that you're truly forgiven. You've been made right with God, not by anything that you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. 
And the way to receive that peace and that clean conscience is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, by dying in your place to redeem your life. And as you put your trust in what God has done for you because he loves you, it will cause your heart to increasingly well up and be filled with love for God and love for others. You see, sound doctrine leads to good outcomes in your life, whereas bad doctrine will lead to bad outcomes. The way to avoid bad doctrine and build your life on the firm foundation of sound doctrine is by studying the word of God, but not just studying it, also responding to what it says in faith and in obedience. I want to challenge you to do that this week and into this new year. Sound doctrine gives a foundation for a life of health and peace based on the hope of the gospel. Would you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.